This week, I had the great honour to speak to former Perth resident and Curtin University graduate and now world-renowned speaker and Hindu priest, Dandapani. We had an awesome conversation about what it was like to spend 10 years in a monastery in Hawaii, how achieving your purpose in life and understanding your purpose is centrally important to navigating life and now spending time with yourself can actually help to clarify it. We also talked about being mindful of where you spend your energy, much like you would your money. We talked about concentration, we talked about affirmations, um, we even had a really amusing finishing conversation about what the three ash lines on his forehead actually represent. Dandapani lives in New York and so it's the first conversation that I've actually had online yet I believe that that, um, that didn't take anything away from the rapport and the energy in the conversation which was hugely insightful, focused and, and like I said really amusing. As a result of this conversation Dandapani has offered up to WA Real listeners the opportunity to have um, have a big discount on his introduction to meditation course. So, and so for the next th 31 days up until the 11th of December, if you are interested in what Dandapani has to say and you want to investigate and check out his stuff more, then go over to dandapani.org and put in the, the code WAREAL, all one word, and you can go and check out his online 12-week introduction to meditation course. And uh, I'd recommend it. Anyway, it was an awesome conversation. There was so much in there to talk about. Um, I give you Dan Dapani. Hello, and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people both in and in today's instance, from Western Australia. Stories inspire you and equip you to take action to be all you can be. Today, I have the personal honor to speak with Hindu priest, world-renowned speaker, coach and entrepreneur, Dan Dapani. Moving from WA from Kuala Lumpur, he completed high school here and then studied electrical engineering at Curtin University before leaving this behind on graduation to become a Hindu monk in a monastery in Hawaii studying under Hinduism's foremost spiritual leader of the time, Sivaraya Subaramuni Yashwami. He remained at this monastery for 10 years until eight years ago his, when his vows expired. He then ventured out into the world, first to LA, before making New York his home, where he's determined to live and practice everything he has learned and teaches. No small feat, I imagine. He now shares the tools and techniques of his learnings working with a variety of individuals, companies, and organizations around the world, conducting training through workshops, retreats, and exclusive coaching circles. He has the unique ability to simplify the understanding of the mind and make spiritual tools practically applicable to everyday life. Dandapani, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryn. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. So um, if you look back to your time on us when you did live here in Western Australia, how, how do you look back on that time and what do you remember about living in Western Australia? Oh, um, it was great. I loved, love Australia. I still, still do love Australia and, and I love Perth. I think it was very different when I was there compared to what it is now. I do go back periodically and, um, it's, it's so developed. And I think about 20 years ago it was a lot more quieter. 
Yeah. And no, just love the sunshine, love the beaches, love the people. I mean, I was in high school and university and it was probably, you know, so much fun. And yeah, only, only great memories of Australia. Yeah, it's quite, I imagine it's quite a stark contrast to living in New York. Oh, totally. Yes. Uh, I don't even go to the beach here. People say like, hey, in the summer, come, let's go to the beach in Long Island. I go like, that's not a beach. <laughs> You've been spoiled. <laughs> I totally been spoiled. I still, after eight years of living here, have not been to a New York beach because I don't want to go there. It's no. not really close to any Australian standards, so I just won't go. There you go. Oh, so, for that matter of fact. So, what was the attraction to becoming a, a monk for you? I've... Um, heard some of your story beforehand i understand that it was something that you wanted to do quite early in life and, and you were very keen to go off as soon as you you know graduated in fact weren't you told to come back and graduate in electrical engineering and then you could, could become a monk yes um good research yeah. <laughs> yeah i think the biggest impetus was when i was a kid uh, you know probably around eight nine years old i realized that Almost, I realized everything in life was transition, uh, transient in nature. You know, things were created, things existed for a while, and then it just went away. Uh, I give an example that I always give. It's that I remember going to my cousin's house for a birthday party, and you know, my brothers and I were really excited about it. And parents, are, you know, said so we're going to go this evening, and so we're waiting all day to go to the party. And then we get in the car, and dad drives us over there. You know, we. Uh, that was the creation part of it. And then we go and we experience it and with the birthday party and eating cake and playing with balloons and playing with my cousins. And, and then we get in the car and drive home. And I remember looking out the window and going, that's it. It's over. Everything is over. So what's the constant in life? You know, mom says she's going to take us out for ice cream tonight. And so we're all excited all day and talking about what flavor of ice cream we're going to get. And we go out and get ice cream and enjoy it. And then it's over. Right. And people, they live and then they die and then it's, it's over. So I'm like, what the heck? You know? <laughs> I mean, what's what's the constant in life? What is what is it in life that does not change? Uh, and is, is that what underpinned your, your, your search and wanting to become a monk? What is the constant? Right, exactly. What is there? I just couldn't, I couldn't accept the fact that life was just that. Those three stages of creation, experiencing, and then watching it all just go away. So there must be something deeper to it. And I found that the monastic path was the most efficient way to finding that answer. You know, and uh, I could have gone off and become an engineer and and done all that stuff, but it it wouldn't be an efficient way to try and find what I was looking for. So that's why I joined the monastery. Right. So this. So this this almost um, search for a constant gripped you at quite a young age. Yeah. Um, so th- th- this uh, uh, listening to it, it's almost like um, an awakening beyond what everyday life appears to be like. Do you believe that we all go through this awakening, or I mean, you had yours quite early, it would seem. Yeah. Or do you um, think there are some that just travel through life and don't? Oh, I think there's a lot of people that travel life through life and don't and just, you know, wake up, uh, they're born and they go through life and then they just keel over and die and not give a thought about where they came from or where they're going next. And, and they just accept that as, as life. This is life. This is what you do. You, you, you're born and you, you poop in your diapers and your mother changes it and you eat and go to school and you 
graduate and get a job and get married and have kids and then have grandkids and then die. And that's life. That's, that's it. For some. Well, a lot of people, mm. you know, nobody questions it any deeper and wants to find out deeper or wants to make life amazing. Most people just accept being ordinary and, and not wanting to find out more about life. And that's my observation. I mean, I don't have to go far out of my apartment to discover that. <laughs> yeah. so can you give me um just a brief insight into what life was like actually living in a monastery and i'll be really open the reason why i'm asking this is two reasons one i've never met anybody that's spent time in a monastery and two was um between the age of eight and 18 for myself i lived in an english boarding school so i was somewhat closeted away um, right. for an informative part of my life. And so I'm intrigued just to hear some of the things that you, you experienced and encountered to see if there are any similarities. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I think it's really important to understand this. There's a lot of monasteries out there, but a lot of them aren't traditional, you know, uh, and a lot of them have co-ed monasteries, which really doesn't really work because that's not really what a monastery is. And you can come and go whenever you like and you don't take vows. The monastery I joined was extremely strict and extremely traditional. And what that means is that only men under vows could live there as monks. So you actually go through a year of training before you even qualify to be a monk. Right. And then once you're accepted, then you take formal vows. And these are vows of, you know, there's a few different vows that you take, but they basically, essentially, you, you lead a celibate life. Uh, you burn the bridge behind you. So whatever money I had in my bank account as a university student, which wasn't very much, uh, you, you take it out of your close your bank account, you give away all your stuff, your CDs, your clothes, your belongings, and you, you burn the bridge behind you so there's nothing to come back to. You know, I spoke to my parents maybe twice a year on the phone. Right. And... No, no emails. Was that easy to do or hard? Oh, it was very. It's one thing giving up CDs and stuff like that. You know, it's stuff. Yeah. But you know, your actual mother and father and whatnot. Well, it depends what your mother and father is like. You know, they're all. Yeah. It'd be easy Uh, if they're actually wonderful, loving people. Then you know, it becomes really, really hard. And I know there are a few monks that went to the monastery who really didn't like their parents, so it was a blessing to be away from them. Whereas, you know, I'm really close to my parents, so it was very difficult and, you know, close to my brothers as well. And, you know, and while I was there, you know, I didn't talk to any of my relatives, any of my friends. I lost contact with all my friends. And then you lead a very strict life. We have a very rigid uh, routine. Most monks got up about 4, 4.15 in the morning. And the whole day went through a very uh, structured approach and you know we meditated together for an hour in the morning we were in the temple for half an hour we exercised for half an hour we had breakfast and then the monastery is divided into five departments so you were assigned to a particular department and and you probably know we were quite advanced in technology and we embraced technology so every monk you know every person that came to become a monk got a set of robes beads and a mac that they work on, and uh, there was a graphic, defi- de- uh, graphic design department, there was the financial department, there was the monastery, the department that ran the congregation and the, the studentship and the, the education. So we pretty much worked most of the day till about 12.30, and then we were assigned a place to clean the monastery for half an hour, and then we had lunch together for, for half an hour, and then we took a little nap because we woke up the crack of dawn. 
well, well before the crack of dawn. Yeah. And uh, so we had a little siesta for 90 minutes, and then we went back in the afternoon and worked. And, you know, we stopped working at 6. We had a little hour break and then watched TV for two hours and then went to bed. Right. Yeah. Sounds, sounds remarkably like boarding school. Very regimented. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Probably a little more wild than boarding school, but... Well, yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but it was, yeah, equally strict and regimented. Right. So there you go. So um, I heard that, um, I heard in a previous interview you did that um, your time in the monastery means that you have to spend a lot of time in your brain and, and the fact that you realize that you're going to be spending your whole life in your brain. Can you just expand a bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, to put it in a sim- simplified way, in a, in a traditional mon- monastery and where you get traditional training like this, and this is just my perspective of, you know, my experience of living 10 years there. It's the whole idea is you really strip a person of everyone and everything they know. And there's really no escape or go to, to. So, you know, if you look at an average person, if they're going through a hard time, they'll, they'll get on the internet, they'll get on Instagram, they'll post something or they'll post something on Facebook and say, Oh, I'm really sad. And then 10 friends will heart their post and say, hey, don't worry, you know, we love you, we got your back, and say something sweet to them on their guard and buy a drink or have some food to eat. And there's so many patches that make you feel better. But if you if you took everyone away and everything away from you and you were just left by yourself, there was no escape. And whatever demons you had to face within yourself, what would you escape to? Absolutely nothing. You just have to face them. And that was really a big part of the training. It was not just about the mind, but it was just about the body and your nature and your personality and just facing every part of it. And that also includes the beautiful things about you, right? Not just the, the not so good things, but every aspect of you. And that was really part of the training. You strip everyone and everything away from a person and they have no escape. Hmm. Now they have to themselves or leave the monastery. And a lot of people left. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, it, it, does, yeah. it d- doesn't take, you know, I likewise could walk out of here and go to the bus stop and, you know, everybody would be holding a mobile phone doing this and, and you know, nobody's sitting there considering the greater, you know, greater part of life and themselves. And, um, yeah, just I myself, uh, there's a part of me that, that listens to your experience and thinks, wow, that, that would be an amazing experience to not have to worry about anything else but just live in, live in my brain and uh, and deal with that but i can imagine to a lot of other people it is very scary it is and it's really interesting you mentioned the bus stop because uh you know i live in new york and i take the subway everywhere and it's so interesting to observe people when they get down to the subway you know walking down the stairs and they're standing by the platform waiting for the train to come first thing most people do is reach into their pockets of their purse and pull out their phone hmm. people find it extremely difficult to spend any time with themselves because as soon as you do, you have to face what's in your head, whether that's pleasant or unpleasant. And if it's unpleasant, then it's very unpleasant. So just let's get on the phone and interact with something that's more pleasant than yourself. So you yeah. see most people, look at the bus stop. Every time you drive past a bus stop and see how many people actually sitting there just reflecting on life or thinking about something and not engaging with something or someone else. Mm. People find it extremely to do that. Yeah, yeah. So um, your vows then expired. Um, yeah. uh, I, I didn't realize vows could expire until I, I think I, I did a bit of research. I kind of, kind of thought once you were in, you were in, and that's it now. Um, 
how it works, when it's like, at least in our monastery, the and in our tradition, you take vows for two-year periods, and every two years you renew them. And then after about 10 to 14 years of training, then you can take lifetime vows. So it's almost like you date before you get married. Right. Unless you're Vegas, then you marry and then you date afterwards. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, I like that analogy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, was there ever a point where you thought, that's it, I'm going to get married? No, never. Uh, oh. Until um, I decided to leave. That's when I decided I would no longer be a monk and I would choose a life of a priest in Hinduism. So you take the Catholic faith, for example, uh, priests and monks live pretty similar life. They lead celibate uh, lives. They, they live by themselves or in cloisters with each other. In Hinduism, priests and monks are quite different. Monks are leading celibate lives, whereas priests are more considered, are considered to be in the householder category. So we can get married, you can earn money, have children, be poor, be rich. It really doesn't matter. Mm. Um, so when I decided to leave the monastery, I chose not to be a monk anymore and decided to be a priest and uh, get married and earn money and, you know, do be an entrepreneur. <laughs> exactly, yes. Indeed. So um, it, this is probably a question a lot of people ask you, but was it quite a culture shock leaving? Yeah. Leaving the monastery. And then if I understand you, you first landed in LA. Why didn't you come back to Perth out of interest? Uh, because good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Uh, the culture shock they have. The <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's my guru advised me a long time ago. He said a monk should never return to the place that he grew up in because uh, everybody there will treat you the same way you were before you became a monk. Hmm. You know, like when you go visit your mom and dad, and they go like, oh, you're my little baby. You're yeah. my little boy. Right? And you go like, mom, it's been 30 years and so much has changed in my life and I've done so many things and I've grown in so many possible ways. No, no, no. You're still my little baby boy. Absolutely. And, yeah, and your friends look at you the same way that you were before you became a monk. And, and it draws you back mentally to, to all ways of living and all patterns of thinking and as opposed to where you are now. You know, after 10 years of monastery life and monastic life and putting in that much effort and work you want to go forward and not go backwards mm. so it's a general rule of thumb for monks uh never to go back from where they grew up right not never go back i go and visit but you know yeah. never you know. do you still have family here out of interest i do yeah my parents live in in perth and right. i have cousins and uncles and stuff aunts that live there as well super so um can you give us and a brief question to answer that one no it, for me it wasn't really i i adjusted pretty well i felt uh there were some things that i felt really changed for me. i lost track of sports I used to follow the premier league a lot and you know and uh all of a sudden you come out 10 years later and people have retired and new people have like you know things like music and stuff when broke up really when good luck <laughs> Things like that, you know, uh, who died. And, uh, so those things, you know, it's a little bit of a culture shock. You come out and people start talking to you about Jay-Z and Beyonce and you're know, like, who are these guys? So, and, sorry, earlier on you were saying when you run through your normal day, you, you spent some time watching TV. So mm -hmm. what were you watching on TV if you, if, if you were unaware of the fact that Wham had died and Jay-Z has turned up? Um, no, sorry, Wham, Wham had parted. Yeah, um, 
So normally we watch about half an hour of news every day to kind of keep up with world events and current events around the world. And, and then most of the shows, the remaining 90 minutes, uh, one monk was in charge of TV. And so he would record shows uh, for the monks to watch. It was basically a time of relaxation for the monks. It was optional. You could watch TV or not. So we would watch um, documentaries, the History Channel. Uh, sometimes we'd watch TV series like The Monk, if you've ever seen The Monk. We watched Monk. We loved Monk. Yeah. Uh, and just stuff like that. It was usually PG shows and comedies and sitcoms and not sitcoms, but more like comedy and movies and document educational shows, mm. you know, Marvel channel, things like that. So cool. So um, you land in America. Can you give us a rough idea of how you've gone from there, which was what, seven or eight years ago to mm. now making your learnings and teachings part of well, your way of life and your business? Yeah, so I, I landed the first day in LA close to midnight when checked into a backpacker motel, roomed with six German backpackers. The next day, you know, went out and so when I left the monastery, they they gave me my robes and they gave me a laptop to use and a thousand dollars cash uh, to to get started. And you know, I went out the next day and just bought clothes and stuff that all of you guys have. Uh, and um, it was a little difficult at the start because in America you need a credit history to get a lot of stuff, so you couldn't even get a cell phone because you don't have a credit history. And a bunch still ran into it. You can't get a credit card, things like that, because I had no credit history. So it was a little tricky navigating that. But, you know, I, my, goal, my whole goal basically was to, to work for myself, to be an entrepreneur. I told myself I'm never going to borrow any money. Not never going to, but I'm not going to borrow any money. Uh, because if I know how to borrow money now, I'll always know how to borrow, borrow money. And if I know how to make money, I'll always know how to make money. So my goal was to take oh, $1,000 the the Mac I have and all the tools and teachings I have and create the life that I want. So one of the first things that I did was to kind of really get a sense of where the world was uh, at that time. This was at the end of 2008. So it's almost nine years ago and, uh, you know, kind of going through the global financial crisis at that time. So it was a huge time. Everything was kind of crashing around, around me. Uh, so not the best time to come out of the monastery. But I traveled around for about a year and uh, then finally came to New York City and decided I'd make this my home. You know, I felt that one of the things when I lived in the monastery that I would hear people say to me quite often is that, you know, when you chant teachings with them, they would say, well, it's very easy for you to practice all of these things. You live in a monastery in Hawaii. How hard is it to, to be Zen, so to speak? You don't know what it's like to live in LA or London or New York or Shanghai. So... Living in New York now, having my own business, you know, nobody ever complains to me and goes, well, you don't understand. I'm like, what do you mean I don't understand? I live in New York City. I have my own business. I have all the challenges you have. So there's no excuse not to put what I'm teaching into practice. You know? so, so is this phase of your life almost like a test of your teachings for you in one yes. sense? Yeah, it really is. Because, you know, if, if I don't show people that it can be done in a big city, like in a city like New York, and, you know, while running your own business, then what? how else can I prove it to people that it's going to work? Indeed. You know? yeah, so, so. so what are some of the tools and techniques that you do share and, and you do teach? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I teach is really about understanding the mind and uh, cultivating focus, right? So, you know, I always tell people that the mind is the most powerful tool we have in the world, yet we've, it comes with no instruction manual, you know. Point and shoot camera comes with a semi-page manual. Food comes with instruction. Your clothing comes with instructions on how to wash it and clean it. 
But the mind, we don't get taught how it works. You know, we go through school, we learn all kinds of things, but we never get educated on the mind. So one of the big trainings in the monster is really understanding how the mind works because we have to live with it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So once you understand, the, the premise is that once you understand the mind, you can learn to control it. And once you can control it, you can direct it in the direction that you want. The same way, like, like a computer or software, right? And just take Photoshop, for example. If you don't understand Photoshop, you really can't do very much with it. It's not a very user-friendly, straightforward tool. But, you know, if you really understood Photoshop, you could do all kinds of things with it hmm. and create graphics with it. So it's the same thing with the mind. Uh, so I, I focus a lot on teaching about the mind and then teaching concentration. You know, a lot of people are told to concentrate, hmm. right, uh, when they're growing up, but nobody tells you how to. They say, like, hey, Bryn, focus, right? And you're like, okay. Anybody want to show me how to? Mm. They don't. So they tell you to concentrate. And we tell our kids to concentrate, tell kids to concentrate all the time, tell kids to focus all the time, but we don't teach them how to do it. So I teach people how to concentrate, and then I teach them how to practice concentration because there's no point learning something without practicing it. So if I want to be a good tennis player, I have to learn how to play tennis, and then I have to practice playing tennis. Mm. How much do I practice? Well, it depends on how good I want to be. If I want to play in Wimbledon, then I might have to practice eight hours a day, six days a week. But, you know, if I just want to play with my uncle in the backyard or local tennis court, then uh, I practice maybe 15 minutes a week. Hmm. So, so, what are, so, so what are some of the, the ways that somebody who's listening to this can start to cultivate their concentration and, and what have you? I would say the... Well, the simple answer to that is uh, just practice doing one thing at a time. Whatever, whoever you're engaged with, give them your undivided attention. And whatever it is you're doing, give that thing your undivided attention. That's the easiest, best way to practice concentration and to become better. To, to have a better understanding of the mind and concentration and things like that, I, I would recommend just for the sake of time on this interview, you know, there's a, I, I did a TEDx talk that's online called Unwavering Focus. So if people Google that, you know, it's an 18-minute talk, and I kind of go through that in fairly detail, and they can probably get a better idea of um, what, what that's about. But, yeah, the simple way to concentrate is just do one thing at a time. It's, um, it's not rocket science, and there's no complex breathing technique or mantra that you need to chant to be able to concentrate on some special water. You just need to do one thing at a time and just keep doing that until you become good at concentrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, the, the simplicity uh, kills people, Bryn. You know? Sorry, people what was want, that? The simplicity kills people. Right. People want complex things. They want me to give a six day course on concentration, you know, where they stand on their heads and wrap their leg around their neck and, you know, they're breathing out of one nostril, eating only one meal a day of yogurt and organic <laughs> food, and then they'll be able to concentrate, you know. And if it's not complex, they just won't do it if it's too simple. It's nothing complex about this. Yeah. I've I, I found one of the... One of the most straightforward ways of simplifying my life is, is using this button on the side of the phone from time to time, which switches it off. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've also uh, heard you talk about your work with entrepreneurs and, and helping them and getting them to consider money like energy. Mm. Um, can you expand a bit further on that for me, please? 
Yeah, no, for sure. I, I always tell people that uh, energy is um, a finite resource like money. So there's, no matter how rich you are, you only have X amount of dollars with you. Um, and before you spend your money, you quite often think about it. And, you know, sometimes we spend money without thinking about it. But most of the time before we spend our money, we think, oh, should I, should I buy that? Should I not buy that? Should I go eat that restaurant? Should I stay in that hotel? And you might do have reviews of that hotel or restaurant before you spend and invest in it. So we only have a finite amount of energy. Come 11 o'clock at night tonight or 11.30 or whatever time it may be for you, you're exhausted and you have no energy left and you say, I'm done, I'm going to bed. And then depending on how well you sleep, your energy builds up again and then you go out the next day and you invest energy into people and things again. So so treat energy like you treat money before, you know, if I said to you, hey, Brent, I'm starting a new business and I'm looking for some investors, you know, if you invested $10,000 and I got 30 more of my friends who put 10 grand each, uh, I can get my business going. Now, you're not just going to write me a check for 10K. You're going to ask some questions. You're going to ask like, hey, what's your business plan? What's your, you know, what's my return on my investment and all these questions. But if you had enough, you had an infinite source of money, you'd probably just give me a 10K. Hmm. So we don't have an infinite source of energy. We, we get exhausted at night. So, so be mindful of who and what we're investing our energy in throughout the day. And especially as entrepreneurs, right? Because you've developed a certain niche uh, and expertise in a certain niche, and people want your time. They want to find out from you, how do you do that? You know, Can you share your thoughts with me, your ideas with me? And you have to be discriminating in terms of how much energy you're giving out to people, and are they actually going to do something with it? Mm. Is it a productive place to put the energy? Right. You wouldn't invest in a company. You wouldn't put 10 grand in a company or 50 grand in a company knowing <laughs> that they're going to go bust, right? Or they're just going to squander it on a company party instead of, you know, building their product line or whatever it may be, you know. Uh, so you'd be very mindful of how they're going to use your money. So the same way, if you're going to give your energy to someone, it's good to know what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Right. Are there, do you believe there are ways to expand your energy source? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, one of the one of the best ways to do that, you know, is through through right living. You know, the types of food that we eat. You know, certain foods consume energy. It makes us lethargic. It, other foods that we eat make us more alive and alert. You know, you can go out and maybe have a huge steak and a few beers, and you're not going to feel so driven afterwards. Probably, and, you know, you might feel a little lethargic and. Uh, but then, you know, if you eat some maybe lighter foods and, uh, you know, healthier drinks, then you feel differently. So that's one way through right eating, through right living, uh, the types of shows we watch, movies we watch, books we read, the people that we interact, who's consuming our energy, right? Mm -hmm. So part of managing your energy, I call it the economics of energy, you know, it's uh, where, where are we losing energy? You know, who's consuming our energy? What people are consuming our energy? What things are consuming our energy? What problems in our minds that we carry through our lives are consuming our energy? But, you know, to just to wrap up the point about expanding energy and creating expansion. So right eating is one way, you know, um, being in right environments, breathing fresh air, clean water, all those things. You know, you go to the beach and you feel more energized, right? You never feel lethargic when you go to the beach or into nature. But there's a lot of fresh air in there. So there's a lot of things like that that you can do, proper exercise, you know, keeping you in good, good uh, physical condition also allows you to have retain more energy. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, 
One of the big themes that uh, I, I sort of look at it through this podcast and through my own experience is um, sort of midlife transition. Um, I think I've referred to myself um, and my past as um, of being um, poster boy for a cliche mid- midlife crisis uh, through one reason or another. Um, what's your view on what goes on during that sort of mid part of our lives, you know, sort of 35 to 45, given the fact that um, you've had this opportunity to step back and, and sort of watch others move through and you might have witnessed a lot of this? I, to be honest, uh, I, I never really gave it too much thought. But I would say, you know, one of the things in general I've noticed about people and people kind of go either you want to call it a midlife crisis or just really not clear where they want to go is because people don't have a sense of what their purpose in life is, you know. And, and if you ask most people what your purpose in life is, most people cannot give you a straightforward answer. True. If I asked you, Bryn, what color is your vest? It's red. You don't need to give me a three-sentence answer. It's just red. So, you know, if you ask people what's your purpose in life, can somebody actually give you like an eight or ten-word, one-sentence answer? And most people can't. They just ramble on, which tells you they have no idea. So I think because people have no idea what their purpose in life is, you know, they, they go through life and they go through this this process, like I mentioned earlier, of just, you know, going through school, graduating, getting a job, getting married, having kids, because everybody is doing that. So you feel like you need to. And then you get to a certain age and you go, shoot, I need to have kids now, right? Because everybody, all my friends are having kids. And then, and then after a while, you just go like, what now? What do I do? And then I think people go through that crisis because there's no greater purpose driving their life. Most people just wake up every day and just do the same thing over and over again, get to the weekend, take a couple of days off, enjoy it, and then go back and go through the grind again. Is there any greater drive to their life than mm. that? So you think this period is where you sort of almost your greater total self suddenly goes, I've had enough is enough. It's time to start trying to realign you with your purpose, and that's why things start to happen. Yeah, but even most people go through a midlife crisis and then just default back to what they were before. Hmm. You know, people actually find out what their purpose in life is through the midlife crisis. If you you really observe people when they go through their midlife crisis, after that they just go back to repeating what they did before the midlife crisis, but with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and, and they and they feel it's it's a new life because they're with somebody else and they're doing something, or they move to another country and settled down and met somebody else and started a new life. And they feel like, yeah, no, I'm doing something different. No, you're just doing the same thing in a different place with someone else. So, you know. So how can we get more in touch with our purpose? And, and so we can get it down to a nice, concise, almost sentence elevator pitch, as it were. Yeah, no, I would say the easiest way to do that is to spend time with yourself. And most people don't spend any time with themselves, right? So, for example, you spend, you know, this time with me having a conversation, you get to know me better, right? You've, you've read about me or maybe done some research, but now that you talk to me, you kind of see how I talk and you get this sense of who I am. But if we talked every week for an hour, after a year, you really get to know me, right? But the only way to get to know me is to really spend time with me. And if you look at most people, they don't spend time with themselves. People say to me, like, oh, when I walk my dog in the park, that's when I spend time with myself. That's my alone time. I go, like, no, that's walking the dog. Hmm. You know? And when I go for a run, that's my alone time. 
that's my time to be with myself. No, that's running on the sidewalk and avoiding being run over by a car or stepping on dog poop. Yeah. You know? So spending time with yourself is actually sitting down, cross-legged or on a chair, quietly at home, your eyes closed, you're not engaging with anything, you're not reading any books, you're not listening to any podcasts or other people's opinions, and you're actually having a conversation with you. Like you are asking me a question and I'm giving you a response, and you're learning about me, and then you ask more questions on my response. That's having a conversation, and most people don't even have a conversation with themselves. So if you don't get to know yourself or spend any time with yourself in that way, how will you ever know what your purpose is? Hmm. So is it actually almost having a conversation and see what pop backs in your head, or is it writing down journaling, or is it a number yeah, of you things? Could, you could write down, <clears throat> so you ask yourself a question, what am I passionate about? And write down the answer in the journal. I have no idea. That's why most people would respond. Uh, and, and then you just keep having the dialogue and have that dialogue every day. If, if, if a person spent five minutes a day having a conversation with themselves, and the way I tell them to do, which is to sit down, close your eyes, and have a conversation with yourself, write down your answers, and do that every day for, for a few months, I bet you they will become so much closer to finding out their purpose in life because they would truly start to understand at that moment what was important in their life. But they don't. No. And people think, I have no time. I'm too busy. Five minutes, I just don't have the time in the morning. I have to rush out. I have kids. I have this. I have that. But it comes down to what your priorities are, right? And then it's so interesting, Grim, when you ask someone to have lunch with you or dinner with you, they'll say, sure, let's have dinner next week. And most people have dinner for two hours, right? Go out, have a meal, have a couple of glasses of wine, chit-chat for two hours. You know how many five minutes there are in two hours? The 25-minute blocks, the 24 five-minute blocks in two hours. That means that you could meet with yourself for 24 days straight and have five-minute meetings for 24 days. I like that. Yeah. So it's not impossible. It comes down to how important you value it and how much you really want it. At the end of the day, most people don't want it badly enough. Mm. Mm. And I guess guess that whole distracting yourself – away from the dark and scary stuff that in itself can become a habit of suddenly realize that people get quite addicted to busyness nowadays. So it's not even just trying to avoid themselves. It also is a pattern of stuff. I've heard you say, you, you know, what you practice, you become good at, um, but practice doesn't discriminate between whether it's productive or not. No. And that's one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, I, I was in Korea like a week and a half ago at an event and there was somebody from a newspaper that was interviewing me and we were having a similar conversation about purpose. And the, he was a reporter and he actually said to me, you know, Donna Pony, I don't do this. And I'm not sure if I'm going to do this because I'm afraid of what I might find out and how my life will change as a result of it. And I actually thanked him for being so honest and vulnerable about it. And a lot of times people don't want to find their purpose is because they're worried about what the repercussion is going to be. Mm. They might just quit their job, leave their family. Who knows what might happen? But they're too afraid to face that. So let's just not talk about that and just go back to tweeting and uh, Snapchat. And stuff. <laughs> and stuff. Right? And stuff. The repercussion could be devastating to the nervous system and, and to, to life in general. Hmm. So what, um, what makes you laugh nowadays? My wife does. Right. Uh, my wife makes me laugh a lot. And, um, and I have a few friends that I enjoy hanging out with and talking to because we, we just laugh all the time. And a couple of them are Australians. And, um, 
and we just spent a couple of hours, two, three hours, just talking absolute nonsense the entire time. Uh, just rubbish. You know, I spend most of my life and my time talking serious things like about the mind and how to focus and purpose yeah. in life and That's what creating a 50-year plan and, you know, learning to manage your energy and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, so it's just really nice to sometimes to just sit down and hang out, especially with an Australian where you talk rubbish for hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're brilliant. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So great. So relaxing. So refreshing for the mind. Indeed. Indeed. Um, if we just ask you one last bit about um, affirmations. I've, um, yeah. I know a lot of people think that if they just write stuff down and, and then just say it to themselves in the mirror, then, you know, like a, a bicycle will turn up on the doorstep and stuff like that. I've heard you talk about it. There's more to yeah. it than that. Could you just give us a bit more on that? Yeah, no, for sure. The, the key to affirmation is really understanding that, you know, uh, well, let, let me say this first. There's a quote by Nikola Tesla that I really love, and he says in, in <clears throat> find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Right, and, and I really love that quote because everything at the end of the day is made up of energy and that energy is vibrating at a particular frequency. So the goal here is that if you can tune into the frequency of what it is that you want, you can draw it to it. See, and if you look at people, you know, they're attracted to, to like-minded people. People hang around other people that are similar to them. They will get drawn to that, you know. Um, so with the process of affirmation, what you're trying to do is create a pattern in your subconscious that and then infuse that pattern with energy so it's vibrating at a certain frequency and it'll start attracting things of a similar nature. So that doesn't mean you say the affirmation is I want a bicycle and all you say is I want a bicycle and you don't do anything about it. Mm. Uh, it's not going to manifest. So affirmation should be used alongside effort as well. Alongside so what, sorry? Alongside effort. Yes. Right. So you actually have to put an effort to creating what you want in your life and the affirmation helps to manifest that. So I use affirmations a lot in my everyday life for my personal life, for my work life, for, for my, for my business. But at the same time, I'm also working really hard on those things as well. And I feel the combination of the both of them helps to manifest and create things in your life. But the three ingredients for an affirmation is concise, positive words, a clear visualization and a corresponding feeling. So the feeling being the most important part because feeling is emotion, emotion is energy. And when you infuse a pattern in your mind with that energy, it starts to draw things of a similar frequency towards it. And yeah, that's really it with affirmation. And the consistency is important, right? Hmm. So in you, when you see an affirmation, you have to have the words, you have to have the visualization, you have to have the feeling. A lot of people just say affirmations with just words and then things don't happen and they go like, these things don't work. But well, you're not doing it the right way super super um this might seem like an abstract question it's probably got one of my last i've got well actually i've got one other question for you um yeah, for sure. if you step back what do you make of reality what do i make of what reality Real, reality and what we're up to here it's a big question it is a big question uh from from what sense, Brandon? I mean, like from a spiritual sense, or just um, um, in general? Let, let's take let's take for instance yesterday. I ended up having a conversation with a fellow uh, over lunch. He was telling me about how he's working in lithium mining here, and they're creating batteries, etc., etc., etc. And 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 the story started to chunk up and chunk up and chunk up, and then he finished it with, "Well, you know, 
it's, it's just, he, he'd come from oil and gas and got into lithium and he said, you know, it's just another game. It's just another game. We're all playing games here. Um, and it was almost like that was his little insight into his reality. It's like everything's a big game. Um, we get caught in these games and then we move on. You know, for him, it's working in lithium before it's working in oil and gas. Don't know what other games are. Um, it's just, what, um, what's your view on what we're here for, what we're trying to do, et cetera? Well, I can give you the, the monk answer. <laughs> Go on then. And then give me the Dandapani answer. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the Dandapani answer would be, you know, uh, and nobody's asked me this question before, which I'm glad you asked me, because they get asked the same questions all the time, and it gets a little boring after a while. Uh, so thank you, for first of all, for asking much deeper questions. Uh, in my perspective, that uh, we're really on this planet to realize ourselves, and, and the ultimate goal in life is self-realization, to understand the deeper part of who you are. Right? We're not here to create countless different experiences for ourselves. Right? Our goal is to realize our greatest potential and who we are. And in the Hindu philosophy that I subscribe to, our goal in life is to realize that God and me are one and the same being. Now, we have to define God, so we define God as not being a man in heaven, rather uh, one aspect of God is pure, intelligent energy permeating everything. So the energy inside of me, you, the trees, the stones, it's one energy. We're all that one energy. So our goal is through deep meditation is to realize that we're one with, with everything. You know, we, we are God, essentially. That's really why we're here on this planet. And that is really the greatest purpose in life, because if you look at everything else, you know, what you do oil and gas and then you do lithium batteries and then you go to the next thing and then you retire and you take your money and you go have a few holidays and then you get old and what you die then what you know and how many times do we keep repeating this life and now that comes back to a deeper philosophical question whether you believe in reincarnation or one life i personally believe in reincarnation so for me it's i don't want to keep coming back and going through school and doing the same thing over and over and over again every single life. I mean, this just gets boring after a while. There must be a greater purpose to life. comes back to the initial question that you asked me and, you know, my response about things being transient of nature. You know, what is the constant in life? The constant in life that doesn't change is this pure energy that we're all made up of, right? And once we realize that essentially at the very core of us, we are that pure energy, you know, we realize the greatest depths of us, you know, which is this unchanging self. We are essentially God. And that's what we're here to realize and not just go out and get busy with everyday life and tweet and Instagram again and again and again. Mm. And did I say again, again, and again, you know, yeah. And, again. I mean, and that just doesn't end. Yeah. I've heard it said that, you know, it, we're almost parts of God playing hide and seek with itself. Yeah, well, and we, and I think for me, the greatest impetus for finding that and discovering and even having a purpose in life is that we have one life. You know, I believe in reincarnation, but the next life I could be a six foot tall blonde girl named Susie. I have no idea, right? But I have one life as Dandapani, and I want to live an amazing life, 
right? I want to live an extraordinary life. I want it to be amazing. I want it to be of meaning. And my life is not short. And I don't believe life is short. And people quite often say life is short. I don't believe that. I believe mm. like life is finite. There's a clear definitive end. At some point, we are going to die. But it's definitely not short. And, and because I know there's a clear definitive end to life, I, that's my impetus for being clear what my purpose is. And once I know my purpose, I can actually go about living life. And, you know, people say all the time, Grim, you know, life is a journey. It's about discovery. And I go, like, BS it is. Life is not about discovery and journey. When you go to a clothing store and you walk into Myers or one of those stores, do you walk around for five hours looking for clothing? No, you just want to go in there, find the clothes that fit you, buy it, and then wear it. Then you're excited about wearing it and experiencing yeah. it. You don't spend the time. You don't walk into a clothing store and say, you know what? It's all about shopping. It's about discovering. It's about searching for my clothes. No, you want to buy it and wear it. So why is life different? Why is life about searching? Why do you spend 70 years searching for your purpose as opposed to finding your purpose as soon as possible and then living your purpose? The same way that you buy your clothes and then you want to wear it. And you want to wear it as often as possible and show people how wonderful your clothes look on you. So find your purpose and live your purpose. Don't spend your time, your whole life searching for it. Outstanding. I love it. Love it. One final question. Um, I know that um, uh, previous, normally in this, uh, uh, towards the end of an interview, um, and, and I shamelessly got this from um, one of my mentor podcasters, I asked people to go back and if they went back to like the 26-year-old self or something like that and asked them, you know, give them a piece of advice, what would that be? I'm going to flip this around. If the monk Dandapani was to come and meet the modern-day priest Dandapani, what piece of advice would he be giving you right now? Be unwavering in your focus and, and stay the course. You, I know what my purpose is, and I think now that I'm out in the world, there's a lot more opportunities to be distracted. Hmm. And, and also life is a little bit different in the sense that, you know, I actually have to go out and earn money. And I wasn't living in a monastery, but three meals a day and, housing provided for us, for the monks. Now I actually have to go out and hunt and gather and come back. And uh, But to remember what my purpose in life is that I've known all my life. You know, I'm very clear what my purpose is. I've known it since I've been a child. And to constantly stay focused on that and, and to realize that everything I do in, in life right now needs to be supporting my purpose. I think that's what the monk Dhanapati would say. And that's something I, I remind myself of almost every day that to stay focused and ultimately what my goal is. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Um, Likewise, I, I, was... I really appreciate you asking good questions. Thank you. And just for anybody else out there that's interviewing people, don't be lazy, do your research, ask intelligent questions and ask meaningful questions because it's one of the most boring things when you sit there and someone goes, <laughs> here's five questions I have, and they just go one after another, just things that you can just read off my website. Why do we need to get on a podcast to talk about stuff that you can just read off my web, web page? So well, was, thank you so much for making the effort to ask uh, challenging questions and also questions that are much bigger. You're very welcome. I mean, when when uh, you know I, I sent an email invite out and, and when I, 
when you accepted, I was I was so thrilled. It was a um, you know I've I've watched your interviews before. You've been a big influence to me on 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 my thinking and my development. So the opportunity to speak to you, I just thought you know I've I've got to go all out and um, I've got some questions I want to ask. Um, actually, one last one. What what does the three lines represent? <laughs> Monk Wi-Fi. Monk Wi-Fi. <laughs> Three bars, good connection with God. Two bars, I'm the loser. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Uh, I, uh, there are four sects within Hinduism, and I belong to one particular sect, and it's actually ash that I put on. And the first one represents ego. And yeah. quite often in spirituality, they say one shouldn't have an ego, and you've probably heard that yeah. uh, before. Uh, we, we don't believe that. We believe that everybody has an ego. Everybody has a personality. The goal in life is to cultivate a positive personality. So someone who's kind, generous, loving, industrious. The second one has to do with karma, which is the law of cause and effect that every, uh, by controlling your actions and also by controlling your reactions, you can really determine a lot of what happens in your life. And the third one is illusion, meaning that quite often in life we get caught up with people and things that don't really matter and we forget what our purpose is. So constantly bring your awareness back to your purpose all the time. You just need to keep bringing awareness back to your purpose and living your purpose because you have one life and, you know, at the end of the day, you want to look back and go, was that spectacular or not? And I'll, I'll end it with one statement. It was one of the things that my guru said right before he died was, uh, what an amazing life. I would not have traded it for anything in the world. And, and, and I'll never forget that, you know, what an amazing life. I would not have traded it for anything in the world. I mean, what words to hear from a dying man and, yeah. you know, to be able to look back on your life and go, that was spectacular. The only way you can do that is if you're clear what your purpose is and you know how to take your finite amount of energy and focus it on your purpose. And then you start living an extraordinary life, but most people aren't able to say that. And I don't want to be one of the people that dies and just go, oh, that was okay. No, yeah. that would be spectacular. I love that. Spectacular. It's all out of nothing. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, um, one last question. You, any plans to come back to Perth soon? Um, no plans right now, but I usually do end up coming to Australia a couple of times a year to speak at different events and stuff. So if I usually come, to, if I do come to Australia, I will definitely swim by Perth to see my parents, and maybe we can chat again live in person. I would, I would love to chat in in real time in person. Yeah, so. for sure, we could do that, and uh, that would be really, really wonderful. I would enjoy that as well. Likewise, likewise. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Um, I can't thank you enough. No